going to begin in Hebrews 1 in just a moment. Uh, but if it's all right, I'm just going to mention a couple of kind of housekeeping things for, uh, for us uh, to be aware of, especially those of us who are uh, part of this congregation. Uh, this morning, a little before worship, we sent out a follow-up uh, feedback form for some of, a couple of the things that we talked about last week. So you can check your email. If you didn't receive that, let us know. But if you could, uh, it shouldn't take more than really two or three minutes, five at the most, for you to look through, hit yes, no, maybe so kind of stuff on a couple of questions there and, uh, and respond as we're trying to figure out how we can keep working together in the most effective way possible. Uh, thanks to everybody for your involvement in that. I also want to say it. We say this regularly, but we need to keep saying it. For those of you who are here, who are not a member of this congregation, but you're here with us and connecting us, we're glad you're here. We're grateful for you. And whatever we can do to help you, we want to do that. Um, we hope at our time together, songs that are sung, the prayers that are prayed, the meditations in the word. And as we take the bread and the cup, that's helpful. We know it is because God's given it to us to help us. Uh, but if there's further ways that we can um help you in your relationship with the Lord. We want to do that. We want to be here for you in whatever way possible, especially as was mentioned at the top weeks like this that are trying, you may have some difficulties, either um, fears and anxieties and troubles uh, or some practical need that perhaps one of us will be able to assist you with. Please let us know so we can be there for you. So we can all help each other with our day to day so that we can help each other with the most important things drawn near to God. The songs that we sang were, uh, couldn't be more ideal. Uh, the scriptures that were read, everything has been great today for what we're going to think, think about for the next few minutes from the book of Hebrews. I don't guess most people think poorly of Jesus. Most people. I know there's probably some that do. But even if somebody says he's a mythological character and not a real person, they still think he's an admirable mythological character or something. And people may not like the Bible very much, or they may not like uh, Jesus' people very much, or people who say they're Jesus' people. But again, it's it's a little rare for somebody to say, I don't like Jesus. And while that's the case, I think it's probably fair to say, I'm, I'm fairly certain that we could say, that while most people don't think poorly of Jesus, very few of us think nearly well enough about Jesus. You understand what I mean? He's just better than whatever we think. And part of the reason I know that very few of us think nearly well enough about Jesus as we should is because we're so caught up in other things in this world. We're so attracted to other things. We trust in so many other things. We love and devote our time and energy to so many other things than Jesus himself. And that's not just a problem for them out there. You understand? It's not just for people out in the world that have this problem. It's a problem for those who are believers in Jesus, those who've been saved by Jesus, those who are devoted to Jesus on some level. There's a constant temptation for us to, we don't think about it this way, but diminish the excellence of Jesus by elevating other things up in his atmosphere. The book of Hebrews was written to people who had come to Jesus. You, read, you can read about in chapter 10 that they were, they were all in for Jesus. They had gone to prison. They had had their stuff taken away. They had gone through great trials because of how deeply they loved Jesus and how serious they were about their faith in him. And yet, this book is written because those people had started to drift. And that's the way that it's described in the book. It's not described that one day they turned their back and they just marched away from Jesus. But they just started kind of drifting. Every day, a little further away from him, probably not even realizing it. Some of you who've ever gotten in a boat or spent time in the water, you know how that goes. You don't even decide. You don't even have a paddle. You're just sitting there, 
And you look up and say, whoa, why is the shore so far away? Because you just drifted with the current. That's what happened to these people. And that's what can happen to all people, especially those who've given their lives to Jesus. The argument that the Hebrew writer makes to those who would be tempted, to all, but to all of us who would be tempted to drift away, is that whatever else you may fall in love with, whatever else you may trust in, whatever you may think deserves your time and attention and devotion, and Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Uh, for the next few minutes, I'd like us to look at four things that the Hebrew writer in particular says. There's more, but I just want us to highlight four things that this, uh, this book tells us that Jesus is better than. With each of these, we'll see Jesus is better than all these different things and what that means for us, how we should respond uh, due to that fact. The first one is found right here in the text that Cliff read for us here in Hebrews chapter one, verses one to four. The first thing that Jesus is better than is Jesus is better than any and every source of spiritual wisdom or power. Jesus is better than any and every source of spiritual wisdom and power. He begins by talking about two sources of wisdom and empowerment uh, that God actually would use at times throughout history. Notice in verse one, he says, God, after he spoke long, long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us through his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. If you skip down to verse four, he doesn't just talk about prophets. The prophets are big deals. Maybe we don't appreciate that always because it seems like just about everybody out here has a YouTube channel or they're on a street corner saying they're a prophet. I'll just tell you, biblically, that was not the case. There was an understanding. There were some people that are prophets. All of us are not prophets. And we need to have a reverence and respect, not for really those people. They're just vessels, but for the word that they have to say, this is where we find wisdom. This is where we find power from God is these prophets. But it's not just prophets that he mentions. Look at verse four. What else does he mention that Jesus is better than? Not just prophets, but verse four, he says that Jesus has, uh, has become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. The text goes on in verse five and says, for to which of the angels did the father God ever say, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. If you skip down to verse, uh, well, verse six, he says, and when he again brings the firstborn, Jesus, that is into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. They're not peers. Jesus and angels are not comparable. In other words, he's saying, if you think that there's some sort of spiritual power, no, they worship him. Verse seven continues. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. I think the point of that is they're just servants. First of all, they're called ministers. And also they're described as winds and fire. What happens with winds and fire? Wind, it blows and then it's gone. Fire, it burns for a little bit and it's gone. There's power in wind, but it's not everlasting power. There's power in fire, but it goes out. Angels, like God's angels aren't nothing in other words, but they are nothing compared to Jesus. Verse eight, but of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, or I'll just say specifically where this is quoting from, Psalm 102. This word Lord is not the word for master, which could speak about any person. Like a human being could be a master, a Lord in that sense. This word that's being quoted from Psalm 102 is the covenant name of God. You, Yahweh. In the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. 
they will perish, but you remain, and they all will become old like a garment and like a mantle. You'll roll them up like a garment. They will also be changed, but you are the same, not like fire and wind. You are the same, and your years will not come to the end. And so he says, but to which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? At the right hand of God, on the throne of heaven, in other words. What angel ever had that honor? Verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who inherit salvation? You see the point of this opening chapter is, listen, you pick your favorite source of spiritual wisdom and power. It's nothing compared to Jesus. It bows down before Jesus. It was just a predecessor to the ultimate source, Jesus. Let me pause here. You may say, okay, yeah. I don't, I'm not looking to other prophets for uh, spiritual power and wisdom. Uh, and I'm not looking to even angels. Well, let's just pause for a second and let's acknowledge some things. There are a lot of opportunities to seek out spiritual wisdom and power, even beyond these things that God himself said were good things. Just walk up and down the streets. You'll find them. Come on in here. Palm reading. I'll tell you about all. I'll give you the wisdom you need that will empower you to navigate your life in an effective way. That's what that is. It's a source of spiritual wisdom and power that will help you. All kinds of sorcery and those sorts of things that, that are prevalent in our world. That's what it is. How do we gain wisdom? How do we gain power? Here's a way. Come on over here. You could keep worshiping Jesus. Just use this too. No, we can't. That's what this te- Don't drift away. Don't think there's any other stuff. And by the way, it's not just this. Because uh, those may be, oh, yeah, I would never do that. Uh, but I'm really into a lot of philosophy books. Well, look, if you want to read philosophy books, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But recognize that that's not a source of wisdom and power. You may find a little nugget that's an interesting way to say something that Jesus already said. But that's all it is. Don't think, and maybe I should say, that God had already established from the foundation of the world. It's interesting. So actually... I'll confess, I'm reading a book about philosophy right now. It's a little history book. Um, But it's interesting to me, in one of the chapters, they're talking about Aristotle. It's like, yes, yes, Jesus of Nazareth actually, uh, you know, copied this thing from Aristotle, blah, 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 blah. It was more eloquent than that. But of course, that person is coming from the perspective of, hey, Jesus was just another man. He came after Aristotle. He had some similar ideas. What does this text say about Jesus? Was he just another man who rolled up on the scene and was like, oh, well, here's somebody who had some smart things to say. I'll just kind of copy that. Look at verses 8 through 12. What is it that makes Jesus better than every source of spiritual wisdom and power? What is it? He was there from the very beginning. He's the one who built the world. He's the one that created all things. He's described multiple times in verses 8 and 9, three times actually, as God. Verse eight, your throne, O God. And notice in the beginning, he says, of the son, he, that is God, says, your throne, O God. The father is saying to Jesus, you are God. Verse nine, he says again, therefore, God, your God. Now that we're not gonna get into all that Jesus father stuff. The point is, Jesus is God. He's not just another person. He's not just a spiritual being. He's God. He's the one, verse 10, you, Lord, speaking of Jesus, in the beginning, laid the foundation. You created all things. You made all things. That's what makes him uniquely suited to have all wisdom and power. He's the only source of spiritual wisdom and power that we should be turning to and that we should rely upon. He's not just the son of God, though he is that. He's not just the one who sits on heaven's throne, though he is that. He's God himself. Jesus is better than any and every source of spiritual power and wisdom that we could find in this world or in other worlds. What should we do about that? Look at chapter two, verse one. For this reason, the fact that Jesus 
is better than any source of spiritual wisdom or power. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And whether you're seeking worldly sources or from other sources of wisdom and power that God's used, whatever you may think about them, however special you may think they are, Jesus is more significant. And so the consequences of forsaking his wisdom and power are going to be devastating. That's the point. Look, look back in the Old Testament. What happened whenever people ignored the prophets and they ignored angels? What happened to them? They got ripped up. What do you think is going to happen? If you ignore the word of Jesus, the son of God, the one who sits on heaven's throne, who created all things, your whole life will completely disintegrate. If the one who put all things together is the one who's telling you what to do and you choose to ignore him, everything about your life's going to fall apart. And by the way, haven't we found that to be true? When we've ignored Jesus' word or when we've diminished his word by elevating the words of other sources of what we think are, and frankly, do have some measure of wisdom and power, and we elevate them up in his atmosphere, what has happened to your life? What is happening to your life right now whenever you do that? Jesus is better than any and every source of spiritual wisdom and power, so we must listen to him. Actually, we're not going to read all of it, but in chapters three and four, that is the theme of Hebrews chapters three and four. I'll read just a small piece here, beginning in verse 14, Hebrews chapter three and verse 14. Actually, look at verse 12. He says, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Well, how are we going to do that? Verse 15, while it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. We have to listen we have to listen carefully, pay careful attention. And y'all know what listening is. Y'all remember the difference with your mom whenever she talked about listening. You may have heard the words, but that didn't mean you were listening to her. To listen is to obey. To listen is to submit. To listen is to seek him above all others. Jesus is better than any and every source of spiritual wisdom and power. So we must pay careful attention to listen to him and to him alone. All right, second thing that Jesus is better than. Um, go back to chapter two, actually. Of course, whenever we fail in uh, this first realization, whenever we fail and we, we look to other sources, who is it that we go to? Well, it is people like Aristotle or uh, you fill in the blank with whoever, whomever it may be, uh, some person, some individual. And what often uh, happens is, is we, we find someone to be admirable. Maybe they have some sort of success in life in some arena that we think is important. Uh, or they present themselves as being really intelligent or really well, whatever. We find something. We say, well, I'm drawn to that person. They become this sort of heroic figure to us. And we say, I've got to listen to what they do. I've got to do what they do. This happens in silly ways. Somebody's a good music artist. Brilliant. A brilliant music artist. But then you're like, hey, how do they dress? Well, they're just a musician. Like probably somebody else is getting them dressed anyways. But. I found them to be a heroic figure to me because I thought their music was amazing. And so now I'm going to dress like them because they've taken this heroic uh, position in my mind. Right. This happens with uh, whatever. When we have all sorts of people like this, celebrities, politicians, athletes who take this 
heroic position because we see in them what we, at least on some level, would like to be. I want to look like that. I want to be able to run that fast. I want to be able to talk that well. I want to have that much money. I want to be that confident or I want to be that beautiful or whatever it is. There's this heroic figure that we think will help us to tap into something that we so desperately need. And by the way, we do so desperately need the things that those people in a shadowy sort of way convey to us. Actually, the passage that Leo read for us at the beginning of service is quoted in Hebrews chapter two. See, we were made from the beginning in the image of the glory of God. Now, with sin, that's fallen apart. And actually, that's the argument the Hebrew writer makes. In Psalm 8, David sits back and he says, how, how, how is this possible, God? I see all the stuff you've made. It's so incredible. And what, what am I? What are we that you even care about us? Like We're just these tiny little nothings around here on planet Earth. And you control the stars and the heavens and all this stuff. And you care about us? Are you serious? And it's, it's a psalm acknowledging the grandeur of human beings. Not in any kind of boastful way, in a humble kind of way, but say, hey, we are a big deal because God made us that way. How is that even possible? Well, the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 2 and in verse uh, 8, he says about all this, that God subjected the world to human beings. He says, we don't see that. The second half of verse 8 says, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him, that is human be- humanity, man, mankind. But now... We do not yet see all things subjected to him. And that's true, isn't it? You look around at yourself and in this world and you see a lot of human beings who are struggling to figure out who they are and what they're supposed to do and how to survive and how to be something special that we know we're supposed to be inside. And so we go to politicians and celebrities and athletes and uh, intellectuals and whatever because they have something we think will help us recapture that glory. These heroic figures will liberate us from what's all busted up and broken in us. So y'all know the spoiler for what we're going to say about this. Jesus is better than any and every human hero. Verse nine. And I should have mentioned this earlier. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Hebrews chapter two and verse nine. Though we do not see us in that heroic, victorious state, we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, through, uh, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to be what we ought to be, in other words, from the beginning, before sin and apart from sin. To perfect the author, or some of y'all may be reading from something like uh, the NIV or the NET. They use a word that I really like a lot, uh, the pioneer, the pioneer of their salvation through sufferings. There goes our hero, marching ahead of us, chopping down all the obstacles, all the barriers, making it possible for us to be what we ought to be, to liberate us from sin and the fear of death. He goes on in the text and speaks about how we're brethren of Jesus. He, whenever he addresses the Father, he speaks of us as his brothers and sisters, as his family. And in verse 14, it continues and says, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He himself, this hero of ours, who is God, reigning from heaven's throne. He wasn't always that. There was a time where he became one of us. He came down among us to be, to partake in flesh and blood just as we do, so that through death he might render powerless the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil. There, our great nemesis, our great enemy that we were up against. We had no ability ourselves to deliver us. 
We tried to look to all these heroic figures who might be able to save us from death and the devil and the destruction of the world, but it never worked until one came. The hero we always needed came among us, became one of us, and bound Satan, stole all of his power, and took it back to grant it to those who would trust in him. It says in verse 15 that he did this, that he might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery. For assuredly, he doesn't give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. That is, those who have faith in God, those who are looking to him. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Jesus is better. Whatever you may trust in to fix what you think is broken in this world or what you think is broken in yourself or in your family or in your relationships or your workplace, none of it is going to work. None of it except Jesus. Jesus is better than any and every human hero that we may look to. He's better because he's got more power. After all, all that spiritual wisdom and power, he's the one who has it. He's the originator of it all, chapter one. But it's not just that he has all that power. It's that he took that power and in some measure set it aside so he could come and take part with us. This is the problem with most heroic figures is they ain't interested in living your life. I mean, maybe they did, but they're happy to leave it behind. And they're not really interested in what's going on with you anymore because they themselves are desperate to be rescued ultimately. Jesus said, you know what? I'm willing to give up my position, my power, my greatness, my glory to come and to be one of you, to partake in flesh and blood like you, to suffer like you. Actually, in Hebrews chapter five, it mentions that Jesus learned obedience, to learn to obey just like you. Jesus was never having to obey anybody when he was, nobody. Jesus didn't have to ask permission whenever he built the world. But he said when he was on earth, not my will, but thy will be done. Just like us. He partook in everything just like us. Temptation, even death itself. But the heroic thing about Jesus is not that he was just one, that he was greater than us and superior to us, or that he was just one of us and he experienced all those things. But he won the victory that none of us have ever won. He defeated death. He never gave in to sin. All the things that were evil and bad and dark in this world, Jesus brought his light into it to offer us the hope of salvation and liberation. Jesus is better than any and every heroic figure that we might find among mankind. So what should we do about that? Look back at verse 9. He actually tells us. Verse 9, what's the, the verb associated with us in response to Jesus, our great divine death-beating hero? We see him. We see him. Look at chapter 3 and verse 1. Chapter 3 and verse 1. It says, Therefore, since Jesus is the only hero that we've ever needed or wanted, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider. Or, or I think uh, another one is, uh, another translation of that word consider is, fix all your thoughts. Fix all your thoughts on Jesus. See him. Consider him. Let me show you one more. Chapter 12 and verse 1. Chapter 12 actually talks about the same exact stuff that we're just talking about. This uh, Chapter 11 actually details a lot of heroic figures. Actually, some of God's heroes, Moses and David. But part of the point of Hebrews 11 is they're heroic figures, but they're limited. Uh, they all sinned and they all died. But chapter 12 and verse 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let's lay aside 
every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author, or there's that word again, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then once again, we're exhorted, verse three, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. See him, or maybe we can say fix your sight on him, lock in and consider him. See him and consider him. How much time do you spend reading articles about people that you find to be very heroic, figures in history or contemporaries of here in our, in our time and place? How much time do you spend reading about those folks checking out what's going on on their Instagram, picking up a book maybe, talking to people about them. All right, take all that energy that you might have in these other figures that claim to be heroes, that will liberate us and deliver us and save us. What if you took all that time and energy and you poured it into the one hero that actually will do something for you, that you would fix your eyes on him, that you would fix your thoughts, consider him, all the time. This is how we must respond because whatever it is you're looking at, that's what you're going to be chasing after. Maybe to put it this way, that's what you're going to be following. Y'all remember back in the pre-GPS days, whenever you had to drive somewhere and you didn't know how to get there, but there was a friend of yours and they said, hey, I'll go ahead and you follow me. And you had a friend who uh, was just too fast of a driver, get on the interstate and they're gone and you don't know where you're going. What do you have to do? How do you do that? How do you get through that? You fix your eyes on that vehicle. And whatever it takes, you make sure to get around anything else. Uh, you hope the cops don't pull you over for driving too fast while you're trying to follow this friend, but you're fixing your eyes. And that's all you're thinking about, honestly. Y'all remember that, right? I just got to think about how to, how to catch up to them. I don't, don't want to talk right now. I don't want to mess with the radio. I'm locked in on this because I want to get to that destination. If you want salvation... If you want deliverance from sin and from death and from the fears that sin and death bring about in this world, we have to fix our eyes on Jesus. That's going to require at least two things. One is right here in, uh, in Hebrews 12. Notice what he says is going to have to happen if you're going to fix your eyes on Jesus. We got to purge distractions. Purge distractions. Some of the distractions are sins. You are not going to be able to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus if you're trying to have one eye on him and one eye on whatever it is that your favorite little pet sin is. It's not going to happen. You're not going to be able to. You have to dump those sins out. Drop them off, he says. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to run, at least in a straight line, or you're not going to be able to run and get anywhere until you fix your eyes on Jesus. The other thing that he says, though, besides us uh, purging distractions, we actually read it already back in chapter 3. Remember in chapter 3 and verse 13? He said, we're going to have to encourage one another. Encourage one another. He alludes to that here in chapter 12 and verse 3. He says, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Man, staying locked in, keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus, always considering him more than far above without any comparison to these other heroic figures. It gets tiring for one because there's always these beck and calls. Hey, 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 there's a heroic figure over here. Hey, hey. You, you, could, you could be saved by this. Hey, Jesus may not be as good as you thought he was. It gets, it gets just tiring, and then it can get discouraging. We have to encourage 
one another. We have to learn what that even means, y'all, to encourage one another, to fix our eyes on Jesus, not just to pat each other on the back and say, hey, I'm your friend. Honestly, if I'm your friend, it's not going to matter if you go to hell. The only thing that's going to matter is my friendship is if you and I are helping each other to fix our eyes on Jesus so that we'll be loyal to him, so that we'll trust in him, so that we won't be caught up in all these fake heroes that will do nothing for us in the end. We must fix our eyes on Jesus, purging all distractions from him and encouraging one another in our commitment to him alone because Jesus is better than any and every human hero that the world has to offer. All right, Jesus is better than other sources of spiritual wisdom and power. Jesus is better than any and every human hero. Go back to uh, Hebrews chapter eight. We've actually already touched on something that uh, is sort of a more specific way to talk about Jesus as this heroic figure. In uh, Hebrews chapter eight, and actually we'll start reading at the end of chapter seven. Uh, Hebrews chapter seven, and I think we'll start around verse 23. One of the main arguments that the Hebrew writer makes is about Jesus as a high priest, as the high priest, I should say. Uh, the people he was writing to were being tempted to go back to the old covenant way of worship and, and drawing near to God. And so they, they're, I mean, there's a, a priest, he's at a temple, he's offering sacrifices, he teaches me stuff, all this kind of thing. And so there was a draw to say, let me go to this individual and they'll be able to help me. They'll bring me to God. The Hebrew writer spends a great majority of this book, honestly, especially in the first half saying, ah, no, no, no. All those priests, they're nothing compared to Jesus, the true high priest. Read with me beginning in Hebrews 7 and verse 23. He says, the former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers. Like there's a lot of them. But that's because they were prevented by death from continuing. We had to update. We had to get new priests all the time because they would die. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever. Remember, he defeated death. He liberated us from it because he's free from it. Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save, and this is where I hope somebody's reading from the King James so you can enjoy this word. It's not a word we ever use, but uh, the King James says uh, he's able to save to the uttermost. He's able to save to the uttermost. You ever use that one before? Uh, some translators say save completely is what I'm reading from. I like this is not good English here, but I heard somebody say you can't get any saveder than that. You can't get any saveder than that. All the way saved, right? Since he always lives, he always lives, and he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who doesn't need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. It wasn't just that the other priests uh, would die. That's a problem, but also they were sinners. That's why they died, because they had sinned just like us. So they had to take care of their own sin before they could help anybody else. They couldn't bring you to God until they got right with God. Uh, it, verse uh, 28, it continues, For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, the oath that God made to Jesus, in Psalm 110 he's speaking about, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. And this is what he says, and this is important. When books of the Bible tell you what the main point is, you should pay attention. And at least for the first half of the book, he summarizes his message right here, chapter 8, and verse 1. Now the main point in what has been said, this is my point, he's saying. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat, not on some earthly throne or serving in some earthly temple, but he's taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. Jesus is better 
than any and every priest. Now, let me pause for a second. You're like, okay, the first two kind of seemed important to me. This one doesn't seem all important. I'm not tempted to go to a priest, you know? Now, maybe you are. They're, of course, well, let me, I'll say more about that. But you understand what I mean. You may say, I'm not, like, these people were tempted to go back to, like, offering Old Testament sacrifices, Levitical priests in the temple in Jerusalem. I know that's not the way. I don't have any problem with that. Well, good. That's good. But are you sure that you don't have other priests that you go to? Let's think about what a priest is. A priest is a, a, a person who is a bridge between the human and the divine, right? So human beings have all these problems. How are we going to get to God? Well, let's go to the priest. That person will take us to God, to the divine. On the other hand, what is it God thinks and what does he want? Well, you go to the priest and the priest will say, well, here's what God told me to tell you, right? And so they're a bridge between the human and the divine, between God and man, we might say. So I'll ask the question again. Uh, are you sure you don't have any problem with trusting in other priests beside Jesus? If Jesus says something and some preacher or pastor that you love says something, who are you going to listen to? I don't know if Jesus meant that because so-and-so said such and such. And I don't know if uh, you may have another priest. You're trying to be that bridge to bring you to God. Or I know that's what Jesus said in his word, but my grandma, blah, blah, blah. Your grandma may love God. She may have been great. She ain't the bridge between us and God. You can't listen to her. You can't trust in her. Or man, I say, well, we, we as a church have come up with, or my church, da-da-da. We're not some collective bridge to God. We can't bring ourselves to God. We needed a priest to bring us to God. We needed someone to build that bridge, or even better yet, Jesus didn't build the bridge. He is the bridge himself to bring us to God. Whatever other um, people we may see as being, this is the one that's going to bring me to God. And I want to differentiate a little bit. With our first point about Jesus being the source of spiritual power and wisdom, you know, some people just want spiritual wisdom and power just for me. I'm just trying to survive out here. I actually am not that interested in connecting with God. A priest does a little more than just give you wisdom and power. A priest says, let me reformulate a relationship with you and the divine. And of course, people, they go to imams and gurus and financial advisors and politicians and uh, uh, therapists and all these kinds of things because there's something out there that's divine that will is what I need to be connected to, scientists, whatever. And these people will help me connect to that. What the book of Hebrews tells us is stop looking to those people for your connection to that divine thing that will fill your life up and make you matter and give you a sense of existential satisfaction. No. Jesus alone is the great high priest in whom we trust as the bridge between us and God. So what sh how should we respond to Jesus? Well, we've seen his wisdom and power should make us listen to him. We've seen that his heroism defeating sin and death and the devil should make us fix our attention on him. Go back to chapter four, Hebrews chapter four. And this is my favorite. There's a lot of texts about Jesus' priesthood. I think this is my favorite one, though. Hebrews four and verse 14 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. This is what makes him great as far as being the bridge because he knows exactly what we've gone through. We already referenced this earlier from chapter two, said the same thing. 
He knows what we've been through. He's experienced it. And yet he did it. He overcame. And so he can be this bridge to bring us God. Also, he knows all about God because he himself is God. And so he's the perfect one to bring God and man together. Verse 16, though, here's what we're supposed to do about it. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is better than any and every bridge to God, any and every priest. So we should draw near to him. That's sort of ambiguous, isn't it? You know, listening to him, it's like, okay, got it. I need to read his word. I need to obey him. Boom, got it. Fix your eyes, consider him. Okay, I don't need to spend all my time, you know, watching movies and reading books of the world and all that stuff. I need to think more about Jesus. Got it. What about drawing near? Where do you draw near to Jesus? There's not a location that you should move to so you could be closer to Jesus or something. What does it even mean? Well, I'll tell you one discipline that I think is, is vital for this. And that is the discipline of prayer. I think that's got to be what the, the, the writer is thinking of, at least in a most pressing way. Let us draw near to this throne of grace. When? When you're in trouble. And can I just add, do you ever feel kind of ashamed when you're in trouble to go to Jesus? I mean, until he's really, really bad. You're like, I haven't just talked to Jesus. And now I've got a problem. I feel like every time I go to him, I'm talking to him when I have a problem. And so I kind of, I should just, I'll fix it. And then I'll come to him and talk to him about how I fixed it and how much I love him and all that kind of stuff. That's the dumbest thing you could do. All right. That's the dumbest thing you can do. And might I add is disobedient because this passage says when you're in trouble, when you have a problem, when you're in need, you draw near. You come to him. You draw near to him and let him know your need, whatever desperate need it is. And by the way, if you haven't been talking to him in general or spending much time with him in prayer, in thought, in closeness, in, in by walking with him in obedience, then OK, apologize to him about that. And do better next time. But you go to him when you're in trouble. We draw near because we know that there's no one else who can restore what's broken between us and God. He is the only one. He's the one that we need most desperately. So we draw near to God through him. We draw near to him. I might add, though, notice where we're drawing near. Uh, I'll say two things about it. Number one, it's described as a throne. In other words, refer back to lessons one and two about what Jesus is better than. You can't draw near. It's not a vending machine. It's not a divine vending machine that Jesus is just giving you whatever you want. To draw near to Jesus in your time of need is to say, Jesus, you're the sovereign. You're the king. Whatever you say, that's what I'm going to do. Whatever you want, that's what I'm going to bow down to because I know you're the one. But as you do that, don't be afraid and don't hold back because it's a throne of grace that he sits on. I love that imagery. Of course, grace is an abstraction, much less drawing near to Jesus is sort of an abstraction and a spiritual thing we do. But to think that Jesus' entire throne is built out of grace, what do most kings build their thrones out of? Gold, you know, precious woods, other metals, stuff like that. Make it big, impressive. And what's the point of that? So when you draw near, you know I'm a big deal. You know I'm something special. We do know Jesus is something special. But when we draw near, what we see is not a throne that overpowers us or makes us think, maybe I shouldn't have come here. We see a throne of grace so that we may receive grace, mercy to help in our time of need. Jesus is the only bridge to God. Jesus is better than any other priest you could ever go to for help to bring you to God. 
And so we draw near with confidence in his grace. Last one, go to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Jesus is better than any, any and every source of wisdom, spiritual wisdom and power. So we listen to him and obey him. Jesus is better than any and every human hero that we might think can fix what's messed up and bring us back to God's glory. So we fix our eyes on Jesus. We consider him purging distractions, encouraging each other to stay locked in on him. Jesus is better than any and every bridge to God, every priest that may be promised in the world. So we draw near to him, trusting in his grace. Do you? Do you trust in his grace? Have you come to the throne of grace? In a minute, uh, before we take the the bread and the cup, Mark's going to come forward and we're going to sing nothing but the blood. I'd like you to think about the words to that song as we sing it. What can wash away my sins? All my good deeds that I have done. That's not right, is it? What can make me whole again? Me learning a lot of stuff from my Bible study. No. There's a temptation for every human being to try to do good to make up for our bad. I don't know if it's even a temptation. Well, it it becomes a temptation. Maybe it's a good impulse of wanting righteousness. That's good. But it becomes a temptation whenever we ignore what God has said so clearly. You cannot. As the song would go on to say, nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus except. It's certainly not of good that I have done. It's nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus is better than any and every sacrifice for sins. Jesus is better than any and every sacrifice for sins. I don't care how many good things you do, how many, whether it's in sociopolitical activism, baptizing a bunch of folks, reading the Bible, not just once a year, once a month, never doing all whatever the bad things is that you used to do and doing a bunch of good stuff to make up for all the bad stuff. It will never pay the price for your sin, ever. There is nothing, nothing that can pay for your sins. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11 uh, speaks to this. It's speaking about the priests. He says, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. I might add, these were the sacrifices God had prescribed for people to offer. Even God was saying, hey, this is just a stopgap measure. This isn't the real thing. This isn't actually paying anything off. You're just working on credit, basically, with these sacrifices, okay? Because eventually I've got to actually pay off the debt of your sin to appease the wrath that has come upon you because of your sin. Even the sacrifices God had approved of, they weren't good enough. What do you think about whatever sacrifice you come up with on your own? I can do this and that'll make up for the bad. No, he never can take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, 
He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is actually one of, uh, maybe I should say, this is the unifying element of God's people. You know, if we were all just taking care of our sins on our own, we'd never really be working together, would we? We'd just be all doing our own little thing out here in the world. But fundamentally, the thing that brings us all together in the body of Christ is that though we all sinned, we've all been saved. Not by us ourselves, but by the blood of Jesus. Verse 18, he says, Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. And I'd like to exhort you with this in two ways. Number one, this means uh, stop pretending like you could make some sort of offering for your sins. There's no other offering. Jesus was the last offering, the only true offering for sin. So stop pretending like you or anybody else could ever make an offering for sin. And secondly, actually trust in his offering. Because here's the problem. Some of us would say, yeah, 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 I know there's no other offering for sin, but then we're still running around here acting like we can do something about it or just living in despair that, oh, I guess I'm just cooked then. No, his offering was once for all, for all time, for all people. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can atone for our sins, but the blood of Jesus does indeed save us from our sin. It saves us from death. It saves us from all the darkness and wickedness that's a part of our lives. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? Or are you still hanging on to the things of this world? Uh, chapter 13 tells us what we're supposed to do about this. In Hebrews chapter 13 and in verse 9, actually we'll start in verse 8. He says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. The offerings that were offered, they would eat them. That's what he's talking about here. Verse 10, he goes on and says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin, those sacrifices human beings might be made, they are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his blood, his own blood, suffered outside the gate. His blood is the sacrifice for our sins. And his blood is better than any and every other sacrifice that could be made for sins. So, what do we do about it? Verse 13. Let us go out to him, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Don't try to stay in this world, y'all. In this world, it says you've got to fix yourself. You've got to perform. You've got to accomplish. You've got to make up for your bad. Listen, we've got to do good. We've got to be righteous. But we do that not to make up for our sins, but because God has made up for it and far more through the blood of Jesus. So let us go out to him. Let's stop living in this world. Let's stop being caught up in all the, the promises and all the, the allurements of this world. It's not worth it. It's not going to do anything. It's not going to fix anything. It's not going to save us. Only the blood of Jesus do that. Only the sacrifice of Christ. Only his priesthood. He's the only bridge that will bring us back to God. He's the only hero that liberates us from sin and death. He's the only source of real wisdom and power. So let us go out to him outside the camp. And yeah, people are going to think you're a dummy for that. That's why he says, bearing his reproach. People thought Jesus was a dummy, but we know better. And so we're not going to be caught up in this world or stay with it. 
we're going to trust in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who we know is better than all and will make us better than we could have ever imagined. Verse 14, for here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Maybe we'll say we are seeking his city, which is to come, built by his blood, ruled by his grace, offering life and hope and peace to all who will give their lives to him. In just a second, we are going to all stand up and sing this song, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus, before we take the bread and the cup. But I want to offer this. We don't always do this, but I want to offer this invitation. If you are sitting here and you're saying, I'm not trusting in Jesus, I do think other things are better. I'm going to ask you, if, I mean, if you want to during the song, I'm going to be standing right here. You can come over here and we can pray and talk about it right now during the song. Maybe even better yet, afterward, grab one of us, uh, find somebody here. And if they don't help you, they'll be able to find somebody who can. Maybe you need to be baptized into Jesus today so that his saving power can come into your life and liberate you from sin and death. Maybe you have been baptized before, but you need to uh, reinvigorate your commitment to him. Whatever you may need, please don't leave before you not only recognize or recommit yourself to the truth that Jesus is better.